Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode's theme is math is fun. If you don't already believe that, hopefully you will by the end of the episode. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. This article comes to us from Discover Magazine, and it is called, This Equation Calculates the Chance We Live in a Computer Simulation. Oh, are the chances good? Is that the... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're pretty good, which, you know, I don't know how to feel about that right now, to be quite honest. Right. Well, first of all, how do we define computer simulation? Because I think with all of the, like, Bots and weaponized content. There may be a way to like semantically slice and dice this to say, yes, in fact, this is a bit of a simulation in which we don't have as much free will and independent thought as we thought we did. Right. It's a simulation we made instead of some all knowing computer programmer. Yeah. Yeah. They point out the simulation as being kind of your classic matrix style simulation where everything is just, you know, in our brains and, and whatever, but they don't really go into the details of the extent of that simulation. But, you know, they're mathematicians, maybe using Hagoromochak, who knows? (laughs) And so they're kind of going at it at their very theoretical probability-based way. Mm -hmm. So there's this other calculation called the Drake Equation, which calculates the likelihood that we're not alone in the universe by estimating the number of other intelligent civilizations that might exist in our galaxy now. Mm -hmm. So some of these terms are well-known or becoming better understood, like the number of stars in our galaxy and the proportion of stars that have planets in their habitable zones. But others are still unknown, like the proportion of planets that develop intelligent life, and some may never be known, such as the proportion that destroy themselves before they can be found. But the Drake equation is important because it still allows scientists to place bounds on the numbers of intelligent civilizations that might be out there. And there's another sense in which humanity could be linked with an alien intelligence, which is being inside a massively powerful supercomputer run by such a species. So enter Alexander Bibeau de Lisle and Gilles Brassard at the University of Montreal in Canada. These two researchers have derived a Drake-like equation whose results throw up some counterintuitive ideas that are likely to change the way we think about simulations and how we might determine whether we are in one and whether we could ever escape. (laughs) So the place that they start with is with a fundamental estimate of the computing power available to create a simulation. They say, for example, that a kilogram of matter, quote, fully exploited for computation, could perform 10 to the 50th power operations per second. Hmm? By comparison, the human brain, which is also kilogram size, performs up to 10 to the 16th power operations per second. And they say, it may thus be possible for a single computer the mass of a human brain to simulate the real-time evolution of 1.4 times 10 to the 25th power virtual brains. The article is somewhat vague about what exactly an operation is, but I'll assume it's something like a bit flip or something very minute, which gets Mm -hmm. huge as soon as you apply powers to it. So in our society, a significant number of computers are already simulating entire civilizations in games like Civilization VI, Parts Mm -hmm. of Iron IV, Humankind, and on. Mm -hmm. Obviously, these aren't 
full-fledged simulations mm-hmm. with real people in them, but it might be reasonable to assume in a sufficiently advanced civilization that individuals will be able to run games that simulate societies like ours populated with sentient conscious beings. Like The Sims, right? Exactly. And I don't know about y'all, but I feel like as just your everyday casual gamer, that feels like a little bit too much responsibility and power. <laughs> yeah. But... My Sims never turned out so well. Like, I played a lot, and I can tell you that they didn't have the best lives. Like, I was very oh, yeah. whimsical. It doesn't, like... <laughs> it doesn't mean the simulation wasn't working. Yeah, it working. Really makes me wonder what, like, our world version of being stuck in a swimming pool right, is. Right, right. Maybe it's the pandemic. <laughs> right. I don't know. So, the interesting question is, of all of the sentient beings in existence, what fraction are likely to be simulations? Hmm. So to derive this answer, Babo Delisle and Brassard start with the total number of real sentient beings and then multiply that by the fraction with access to necessary computing power, or FSIV. They multiply this by the fraction of that power that's devoted to simulating consciousness, F-dead, because these beings are actually likely to be using their computers for other purposes, too. I like that. (laughs) You know, their shopping apps and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then they multiply this by the number of brains they could actually simulate, which becomes the value R-cal. So the resulting equation looks like this. It's F-sim, the fraction of simulated brains, is equal to the fraction of sentient beings with access to the necessary computing power, or F-civ, times the fraction of power devoted to simulating consciousness, F-dead, times the number of brains they could simulate, R-cal, over 1 plus the same. Read literally, that's F-sim is equal to F-civ times F-dead times R-cal over 1 plus F-civ times F-dead times R-cal. Uh, I'm sure y'all all got that. You sure? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you can kind of see the basic math. They're essentially multiplying the capabilities of computing power with people who want to use that computing power and how many brains they could actually compute mm-hmm. times the portion of the computing power used for that. Mm-hmm. The thing is that RCAL, which is the number of brains they could possibly simulate, is a huge number. It's 10 to the 25th power. And that weighs the entire formula in such a lopsided way that it pushes Bobo Delisle and Broussard towards an inescapable conclusion. It is mathematically inescapable from the colossal scale of RCAL unless the number of people or the dedicated computing power is about zero. Essentially, there's two possible outcomes from that. Either we live in a simulation or a vanishingly small proportion of advanced computing power is devoted to simulating brains. Huh. All right. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like there is no God or if there is, we're definitely made by God. Like that. Like, it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, math. Yeah. Which, you know, when you put it that way, it's not that unreasonable of a theosophical argument. However, it does say that it's not actually hard to imagine why the second option, where a small proportion of advanced computing power is devoted to simulating brains, might be true. So a society of beings similar to us, but with a much greater technological development, could indeed decide that it is not very ethical to simulate beings with enough precision to make them conscious while fooling them and keeping them cut off from the real world, they say. Mm Another possibility is just that advanced civilizations never get to the stage where their technology is powerful enough to perform these kinds of computations. 
Perhaps they destroy themselves through war mm-hmm. or disease or climate change long before <laughs> then. Uh, there's no way of knowing. And of course, this doesn't, <laughs> this does not encounter the what if there's actually some intrinsic thing to human beings that cannot be simulated. But, you know, they're not really thinking about those topics. Right. Uh, Set those aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but supposing we are in a simulation. Bavo de Lyle and Broussard ask whether we might escape while somehow hiding our intentions from our overlords. And they assume that the simulating technology will be quantum in nature, and if quantum phenomena are as difficult to compute on classical systems as we believe them to be, a simulation containing our world would have to be running on that quantum power. Which raises the possibility that it actually may be possible to detect our alien overlords since they cannot measure the quantum nature of our world without revealing their own presence. I'm pretty sure I just saw that episode on my Voyager rewatch of Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so quantum cryptography actually uses the same principle of which Broussard is actually one of the pioneers. It would make it possible for us to make encrypted plans that are hidden from the Overlord, such as secretly transferring ourselves into our own simulations, which they really just went real far in the possibilities <laughs> here. I don't know why we would want to escape into a sub-simulation, but they also say that the Overlords have a way to foil this as well. All they need to do is rewire their simulation to make it look as if we are able to hide information, even though they are aware of it all the time. <laughs> And then they conclude with their tongues firmly in their cheeks. If the simulators are particularly angry at our escape, they could also send us to a simulated hell, in which case we would at least have the confirmation we were truly living inside a simulation and our paranoia was not unjustified. Uh, Am I supposed to feel relief now? (laughs) No, wait. (laughs) So the article ends by saying, in that sense, we are the ultimate laboratory guinea pigs forever trapped and forever fooled by the evil genius of our omnipotent masters. And time for another game of Civ 6. Right. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from discovermagazine.com, and it's titled How Medieval Europe Finally Ditched Roman Numerals. Hmm. There's a joke that goes like this. Roman numerals, what are they good, IV? I like it. (laughs) It's a nice little number pun, but they aren't really good for much, Roman numerals. Just try doing your taxes with them. No, Um, no, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) By the 6th century AD and possibly even earlier, a much better system now called the Hindu Arabic number system was developed in India. You're familiar with it. We use it everywhere. It uses only 10 numerals, 1 through 9 plus 0. And uh, the fact that we can line numbers up in columns makes it really easy to do addition and subtraction. Uh, hopefully nothing I've said is a surprise, right. uh, but, it, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't so clear to medieval Europeans. Up until the 13th century, they had to make do with Roman numerals, and it was fine for recording amounts of things, but not so useful for manipulating those amounts. The abacus or counting frame was useful but limited, and for more complex calculations, Roman numerals were basically hopeless. It put serious limits on trade, commerce, and especially science. Meanwhile, cultures that used the Hindu-Arabic system not only had an easier time with basic arithmetic, but they were also able to undertake more complex math and enabled them to make big advances in algebra and geometry while Europeans were just fiddling with their letter numbers. (laughs) So as traders from India worked their way into North Africa, they took their number system with them, and by the 12th century, the Hindu-Arabic system was common in ports along the Mediterranean. Arab settlers had brought the system to Spain, and a few Italian scholars had discovered it and were using 
using it for scientific work, but it wasn't made familiar to many until the year 1202 when the Italian mathematician Leonardo of Pisa, whom we today know as Fibonacci, famous for the number theory in the Fibonacci series, Uh which is, you know, the two previous numbers add up and then you just keep adding the last two numbers together. Right. And you get this very interesting magical sequence. So Leonardo of Pisa wrote a mathematics book called Liber Abaci, or the Book of Calculation, and in it, he urged people to put down the abacus and use the Hindu Arabic system for calculations, and he showed them how. Fibonacci had learned the system as a child when he spent time in Algeria, and being the genius that he was, he immediately saw the potential. But the new system didn't actually catch on quickly, so for many years, Fibonacci's book was read and understood mostly by scholars who gradually incorporated his teachings into their own books, and even then, the old Roman system, clunky and limited as it was, worked well enough for what it was used for, and few could actually see the possibilities that the new system would open, and habits were really difficult to change. But eventually, the Hindu-Arabic system did take hold in Europe, just like how I thought I would never use algebra in the real world. (laughs) Joke was on me, right? Right. uh, (laughs) So though it took some time for the Hindu-Arabic system to be understood and accepted, the changes it engendered were far-reaching, transforming not only trade and the sciences, but everyday life as well. In his book on Fibonacci, The Man of Numbers, Keith Devlin wrote, What Fibonacci did was every bit as revolutionary as the personal computer pioneers, who in the 1980s took computing from a small group of computing types and made computers available to and usable by anyone. It's kind of wild to think that entire civilizations until 1202 yeah. AD were just struggling with Roman numerals the entire way through. Yeah, 1202 like, is very late. I'm surprised. Right. Right. Or whatever, M, M, I know, I'm not going to try. I can't. No. (laughs) (laughs) Just how how to even like speak them out. The idea of doing long division or tallying up multiple sums with Roman numerals just makes my skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah. Is it M, C, I, I, no, M, C, C, double I? No. Yeah. M, C, C, I, I. That's what we're going to go with here. Really? I think so. Okay, we're going with it. All right, great. (laughs) Next link. (laughs) Next Next link. All right, let's uh, have a little bit of a palate cleanser here from the Entrepreneur's Handbook. Who knew? Thank you for the palate cleanser, (laughs) Entrepreneur's Handbook. Uh, This article is called An Elderly Mathematician Hacked the Lottery for $26 million. Ooh. Wow. Right? Um, It was a gentleman named Jerry Selby. He used a simple algebraic solution in part because of how this particular lottery was structured. So it has kind of like a little long form intro about one morning, his wife walked into the kitchen, he was drawing on a notepad, and she asked, what are you working on? And he looked up and said, I think I've cracked the Michigan State Lottery. She laughed and, you know, didn't think much of it. She finished her coffee and he just uh, sat with his $26 million secret. So looking back on this man's life, he was the perfect candidate to spot a hole in the system. So he had a humble life, but he had a master's in mathematics and from a young age could solve problems that a lot of adults struggled with. The article notes there is great irony in his future heist. They never drank, they never smoked, did drugs or gambled. Caffeine was their only vice. I have no idea why they would editorialize in this way. Yeah, it's not a heist. This was totally legal. And this is the entrepreneur's handbook going into it. So whatever. Just thought I'd call that out. Um, (laughs) He took an unconventional path after college. He worked in sales. He did factories. He worked in offices. But then he got really tired of working for the man. 
man. He had six <laughs> kids and a wife to provide for. So for whatever reason, they opened a convenience store in Everett, Michigan. <laughs> and it didn't seem like he was going to be a multimillionaire coming this way. But they did do better than most stores. And in part, this is because he analyzed prices from suppliers. He would identify margins, resell supplies to small retailers for a profit. He had graphs and analytics on the earnings per square foot of his store. So hmm. he already knew how to apply math to just maximize everything, even with his convenience store. They eventually bought and owned one of the only lottery machines in Everett County. People would stream in from miles away to chase the impossible dream, but they themselves had never spent a dollar on lottery tickets. His bond with numbers and math made it an obvious decision. He would study the figures on the back of the tickets and he would marvel at people's willingness to play. Mm. But the arrival of a special game in 2003 changed everything. Oh. There was a, <laughs> this game was called Windfall, and the premise was simple. You pick six numbers between 1 and 49. If you guessed two, three, four, or five numbers, you would get a prize in increasing amounts. And if you guessed six, you would win the $2 million minimum. Hmm. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. If nobody won, the lottery purse would go up each week. And sure. after six weeks, or when the jackpot hit the $5 million cap, they did what's called a roll down. And a roll down occurs when winnings are spread downwards to lower tier winners at the five, four, and three level matches. Oh, oh that's nice. So you've got some nice parameters. Anyone who's a math geek is probably like, okay, all right, I can do a haiku within all this. But here's where <laughs> the state lottery made a really terrible mistake. They listed the odds of winning that was associated with each combination of numbers. Oh. So the math explanation could fill an article itself, but the uh -huh. short version, Jerry studied those winning odds and the timing of the roll downs, and he realized that statistically, a single $1 lottery ticket was worth more than $1 in those final weeks. Mm -hmm. And so he put together a plan. He knew he would have to bet big to create a justifiable margin. Mm -hmm. In his first attempt, he bought $2,000 in tickets, which was an uncomfortably large sum for a man who had never gambled, and he ended up losing $50. So he reckoned this was bad luck within the margin of error and realized he was going to have to wager more. So three months later, the next rolldown was announced. He buys a full $8,000 in tickets, and his winnings totaled 15700 which netted him a $7,700 profit. Wow. Now, the game required you to buy the tickets in person. So when a roll down was coming, he and his wife would split up into two cars and hit countless convenience stores across the state. Now, the government didn't notice anything strange. And the Selbys continued this mission for a full decade without oh, wow. the state noticing. <laughs> so this, it wasn't like he won a 26 million jackpot. It was like he figured out how to win a little bit and just uh -huh. kept winning a little bit for a decade. Yeah, I mean, he was wow. running a convenience store by maximizing a spread of margin over reselling. So he knew how to kind of get yeah. these little wins and have them add up. But eventually, a group of students at MIT noticed a flaw in the math as well and started buying up tickets. And wow. finally, a news story broke the lid open on the scheme and the local lottery officials shut down the game. Those dang college kids, they ruin <laughs> everything. Yeah. It's 21 all over again. <laughs> But by, by the time this had happened, Jerry had won more than $26 million from the state lottery. And after deducting for expenses, which when you think about them having to travel all around and, you know, do all that stuff, 
they took in more than $8 million in profit. So the math worked out. There were a lot of expenses. It was an sure. expensive scheme. But to get $8 million, totally worth it. Oh, yeah. 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 No law was ever broken. A man with a mathematical curiosity spotted a hole and stepped through it. They were in this, their 70s at the end of this run. Money hasn't changed them at all. All they've done is renovate their house and pay for their 14 grandchildren's college Whoa. funds. Wow. Nice. So the lesson here, if you are a kid or anybody learning math and you're like, I'm never going to have to use this in real life. Well, you yeah. may just get your chance if you can pay attention to the state lottery, giving you more information than you should probably have access to. And if you do yeah. find a loophole, keep it to yourself. Just quietly <laughs> make money. Don't go out there and be like, Don't I'm tell buying any college kids about it. Yeah. yeah. No. Don't ah. tell the kids. Don't tell the journalists. Just keep your head down. Renovate your house. Pay for college funds because I'm sure that's where the $8 million probably had to, you know, college is expensive. Y'all. Oh, yeah. 14 mm-hmm. grandkids. Yeah. That took a big chunk of it. <laughs> the thing I really like about this story is that, you know, at first you think it's going to be like some Ocean's 26 level heist <laughs> deal where like they figure out a flaw and in one fell swoop they win the lottery, right? Uh-huh. But no, it's like a very patient, calculated game of noticing edges in mathematical formulas mm-hmm. and tweaking that and using that to guarantee a return over, you know, a very long time span, which is like much more realistic. And that's how it is done in real life. Yeah. In, in real life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this also has a bit of uh, scheming to it, which makes it fun. But I appreciate that it <laughs> is a very disciplined scheming. Absolutely. And you know why he was able to to, right? It's because he never drank or smoked. I mean, that's that's why he could pull it off. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. This article comes to us from Nautilus.com. That's Nautil.us. And it's titled, We Never Know Exactly Where We're Going in Outer Space. So, yeah, in the early 1960s during the space race, neither American nor Soviet scientists actually knew exactly where planets like Mars or Venus were, especially at the accuracy and precision needed for spacecraft navigation. Obviously, they knew roughly where a target like Venus would be when a spacecraft got there, but roughly in this context could have been an offset of 10,000 to 100,000 kilometers or so. Wow. Yeah. So planetary positions or their ephemerides rely on the calibrations of their orbits to extremely high precision over time. But the only way to do that properly is to make direct measurements, just like how sailors of old would actually have to sail right by an island or a shoreline in order to nail down its latitude and longitude. Mm -hmm. So an infamous example of this problem came in early 1961 when plans were afoot to send a probe to Venus, which started with the Soviet launch of Venera 1. Both Soviet and American scientists were racing to pin down Venus's position and use it to refine the astronomical unit, which then was defined as the average distance between the center of the Earth and the center of the Sun. A few months along, the Soviets proudly announced their improvised Venus-based measure of the astronomical units, but when Americans saw that this was about 100,000 kilometers different than their own radar-based measurement, they gleefully taunted the Soviets by suggesting that they had instead perhaps detected a new planet. Oh. Uh, But it could have been a lot worse. Like, Venera 1 could have missed by so much that it wouldn't have acquired any useful data, or it might have just careened into the planet and just exploded. (laughs) So with these sorts of traumatic lessons, scientists have been sweating over getting the ephemerides of solar system objects pinned down better and better ever since. 
But even with these immense improvements, the fundamental issue of precisely locating both spacecraft and their planetary targets hasn't gone away, and in fact, in certain ways, it's even become more acute. So one of the keepers of the ephemerides today is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, which provides carefully curated and continually updated data on where we think planets, moons, comets, meteor streams, and asteroids are. It's kind of like a farmer's almanac for <laughs> planetary exploration. Mm. But the further we go, the more exotic our targets are, the greater the challenge. So one ambitious plan being drafted right now is this idea of sending tiny nanocraft with solar sails, which are basically huge metal mirrors that use solar radiation to propel themselves, mm -hmm. and also with a very big laser, all the way to the Alpha Centauri system. And that's over four light years away and would involve a journey of at least 20 years traveling at 20% of the speed of light or around 134 million miles per hour. Jeez. Yeah, you can imagine the problem of getting to the right place at the right time in another solar system is way greater than reaching even one of our own remote planets like Pluto, and getting there was hard enough. Mm. For instance, launched at record-breaking speed in 2006, a New Horizons probe by NASA raced out to Pluto for more than nine years and five billion kilometers. Oof. And using telescopic measurements from here on Earth and a sophisticated computer model of Pluto's orbital motion, we can pin down its location in our skies to a precision of some 0 0.00014 degrees of angle. Hey. Yeah, but how, yeah. how precise is that? Because angle is one of, it's like percent. That doesn't. Yeah, so Pluto is so far away that this small amount of uncertainty translates into a position error of about 13,000 kilometers, which is enough to completely hamper an effort at a close flyby. So <laughs> it's quite precise, but not quite precise enough. Right. <laughs> and to make this even trickier, the spacecraft actually experienced hard to predict drifts in its trajectory due to sublimely ethereal forces from like thermal radiation Ooh. coming from its plutonium filled electrical generator and just messing itself up along the way. New Horizons finally made the encounter in July 2015 to the immense relief of scientists who had waited a literally substantial fraction of their entire lives yeah. between launch and arrival. <laughs> It zipped past Pluto at around 12.5 thousand kilometers of carefully chosen separation. And even getting that took meticulous course corrections using the probe's cameras and a ton of patience. Yeah, I mean, they can correct it along the way. It's not like you shoot it off and you just got to cross your fingers you had it right in the first place. <laughs> exactly. But now compare Pluto with the closest of the Centauri stars, for instance, a uh, red dwarf called Proxima. Mm. It's moving relative to our sun with a total velocity that we know to be about 32.19 kilometers a second, but the least significant figure of 0.01 kilometers a second translates into a raw uncertainty accumulated during a 20-year mission of a little over 6 million kilometers. <laughs> just, just a hair. Yeah, yeah. And that's a star, right? It's a bright, comparatively easily studied object, whereas planets in the system will be a billion times dimmer and much harder to pin down. Wow. So... Interstellar probes going that far are likely going to have to track their own targets, and they'll probably have to do it autonomously because communications with the Earth will take years to bounce back and forth. One of the ideas is to send out a swarm of hundreds or even thousands of nanocraft with modest AI and the ability to kind of learn from each other as a network, and hopefully you'll get to your goal just through tons of redundancy and just accepting that you're going to lose a bunch of them along the mm -hmm. way. One of the most curious things is that there are fundamental qualities of the physics of orbiting stars and planets that hinge on much, much smaller positional uncertainties 
and can literally dictate the survival in an entire system. Mm. So, for instance, there's this idea of dynamical chaos among gravitating objects, which is a confounding but mathematically chartable instability and unpredictability of celestial motions. It turns out that if you track the motion of the contents of our solar system through tens of millions to billions of years of time, variations in the positions of a smaller planet like Mercury, even at the level of millimeters, can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between having just a future of, you know, relatively bland orbital symmetry the way we have now, or a future where the inner solar system destabilizes, flinging planets into the sun, or onto escape trajectories to interstellar space, or even placing worlds on collision courses with each other. Yeah, I'll take the bland fixed orbit. That sounds real good to me. Right, that's the better deal. I don't know. This feels like a really good takedown of math nerds by engineers, right? Because it's like, you can sit there and say like, oh no, we have the math. There's one answer and that's it. And you're like, yeah, but it all comes down to measurements. And if your tools don't work as well as you want them to, Mm -hmm. you can have all the numbers in the world. If they're wrong, it's not going to matter. Right. Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Exactly. And the article goes on to point out that the fact that these small variations can cause such radically different outcomes doesn't really sit well with most humans (laughs) that are hoping for some predictability in the world Uh uh, or the solar system, as it were. I mean, it basically shows we know way more than we thought we did, but also we're still idiots. (laughs) And we don't know anything. Socrates was right. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sfchronicle.com, and it's titled Zodiac 340 Cipher, Cracked by Code Experts 51 Years After It Was Sent to the SF Chronicle. Wow. Oh my gosh, we finally cracked the Zodiac Killer Code. And mm-hmm. what does Ted Cruz have to say I was going to say, I'm assuming we now know it's Ted Cruz. <laughs> so the solution to what's known as the 340 Cipher, which is one of the most vexing mysteries of the Zodiac Killer's murderous saga, has been found by a code-breaking team from the United States, Australia, and Belgium. So this was all right. Teamwork makes the dream mission. work. Yeah. <laughs> so the cipher was sent in a letter to the Chronicle in November 1969, and has been puzzling authorities and amateur sleuths ever since. And investigators hoped that the Zodiac, who killed five people in the Bay Area in 1968 and 1969, would reveal his name in one of his many ciphers. But there's no such name in the 340. According to the code-breaking expert David Oranchak, the cipher's text includes, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me. Ooh. So, All right. Yeah. Turns out Wait, the serial uh, killer was crazy. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we waited all this time to crack the code just to get full details on the killer taunting us, and we still have no idea who this was. Right. Is- yep. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so Aranchuk is a 46-year-old web designer who lives in Virginia, and he's been working on the Zodiac's code since 2006. This is the second time that a Zodiac cipher has been cracked. The first one, one long cipher sent in pieces to the Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and Vallejo Times-Herald newspapers in 69 was solved by a Salinas school teacher and his wife. It was known as the 408 cipher and said little beyond 
I like killing because it is so much fun. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, kind of a trend. I mean, yeah. okay, so we've got multiple different coded ciphers. Has anyone thought about the fact that this is like a Dexter situation? This person probably works for like the FBI? Maybe. I, I mean, because I, they can create all of these different uncrackable ciphers. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about that in the article, but I like this theory. Uh, <laughs> because cryptography, you know, like to create this sort of cryptography that's so difficult yeah you would probably have to have some sort of yeah. specialized knowledge I'll or just do something post. really obscure yeah there you go <laughs> put it out there on twitter yeah so um in most ciphers like the 408 the solution consists mainly of figuring out which letters are represented by certain symbols and in the 340 cipher it turns out that the alignment of the words run diagonally down the page and occasionally they get shifted over a column so it's sort of like a geometrical cipher in a way hmm. aranchuk says that it is a complex complicated bit of code creation, but a basic scheme for it can be found in at least one U.S. Army code manual from the 1950s. So the Zodiac Killer, if not working, you know, as a crypto expert of some kind, probably had some resources and manuals to look at. So as the team began breaking down the methods used in the cipher, they unpeeled a couple phrases that let them know they were on the right track. The references to Gas Chamber and the TV show seem to refer to Jim Dunbar's AM San Francisco show that aired in October 1969. And on that show, Dunbar and attorney Melvin Belly took a call from somebody who was claiming to be the Zodiac, and he said, I don't want to go to the gas chamber. Mm. So the Zodiac is saying, uh, mm. no, I can't wait to go to the gas right. chamber. I am not afraid. <laughs> One of the interesting things about this cipher and the fact that he mentions the Dunbar show, according to Ronchak, is that it forces the minimum date of the cipher's construction. However, former city homicide inspector Gianrico Perucci, who oversaw the Zodiac case for several years before retiring in 2017, said that the new solution probably doesn't advance the investigation much since it's mostly just bragging and it doesn't give you a location, an address, or a riddle, or a job, or anything like that, but it's still good to have it solved. The Zodiac sent two other ciphers to newspapers that are still left to decode, and in at least one of his communications, the killer did say that his name was in one of the ciphers. Oh. Yeah. So Perucci says that that's the one codebreakers have to work on now. We need his name. Yeah. But, yeah. but we don't know which one it's in. He just said it's in one Ugh. of them, so we still have to break all of them. That's yeah. Funny. Okay. And speaking of, the name most commonly put forth as the man likely to be the Zodiac is convicted child molester and Navy veteran Arthur Leigh Allen of Viejo. Hmm. But he died of a heart attack at 58 in 1992 before police could build enough of a case to charge him. Hmm. Meanwhile, police in all three counties where the Zodiac killed, SF, Solano, and Napa, still receive tips to this day. And it's arguably the most famous unsolved murder case in America. Mm -hmm. So one of the three who solved the 340 cipher, Sam Blake, became interested in this case after seeing Aranchuk's work online. And on Friday, from his home in Melbourne, Australia, he said that the team tested around 650,000 different reading directions through the Ooh. cipher before coming up with the right combinations. Mm -hmm. And they worked together for eight months on the puzzle. Wow. So it was just pure brute force on some level, mm -hmm. just like combing through this thing to figure it out. But even so far from the murder scenes, conquering the science of the puzzle didn't dissuade him from the most basic element of the case, which is the human element. And Blake writes, we would like to dedicate our work that culminated in this solution to the victims of the Zodiac Killer, their families and descendants. And we hope that this is a stepping stone towards finding justice for these people. Yeah. Whew. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they don't have any DNA for this guy or it would have just been solved 
a long time ago. Like, this is just yeah. all they have is the notes, huh? Yeah, I believe so. Well, someone fastidious enough to create all of these different ciphers and codes, one would possibly assume that they would be more careful about yeah. not leaving any kind of evidence, right? Very yeah. true. Well, I'm still holding out hope for Ted Cruz myself, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Sentences yeah. rarely said on Damn Interesting Week. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> time will tell. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, we're going to talk about quantum mechanics, and it's going to be confusing, but I have have faith that we're going to get through it. All right. So this comes from the conversation. (laughs) Major quantum computational breakthrough is shaking up physics and maths, because apparently the conversation is European. (laughs) So we're going to take this step by step. So a 165-page paper was published recently on quantum complexity theory, and the enigmatic title was MIP star equals RE. And that's it. And apparently to people in the know, this means something, and it means something earth-shattering. So complexity theory is the study not of specific problems, but whether certain problems can be solved. So for example, some problems we know are so complex that they would take millions of years of computation to solve, but mathematicians nonetheless have proven that they are solvable if we had enough time, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas other problems we've sort of identified are definitively not solvable. So Easy, kind of provable problems are considered in the category P, which stands for the fact that they can be solved in polynomial time. And that includes everything from like basic multiplication up to generating new prime numbers, right? It's a process and we are continuing to slowly generate new prime numbers, but it just takes time. On the other hand, questionable problems are in the category of NP. And these are situations where it's impossible, or at least it seems impossible right now, to prove a negative. Right. So if you imagine a police interrogator questioning a suspect, the question, does he have an alibi? If that is presented as a mathematical problem, the answer yes means he definitely wasn't there. That's provable. Right. We can say, oh, we've checked out this alibi. Mm -hmm. The answer is solved. But if he doesn't have an alibi, that doesn't mean that he did the crime. It just means maybe he did or maybe he didn't. So (laughs) these NP problems can also be thought of as like a needle in a haystack. With any given answer, it's easy to check whether that answer is right or wrong, but there are too many answers to sort through, right? You have to pick up each piece of straw and find out if it's a needle. But there is, kind of keeping with the metaphor, there is a way, such as if you set the pile of hay on fire or if you use a strong magnet, right? That's one way that you could algorithmically address the entire set of solutions and come up with where is the actual solution hiding within it. And so... The Mm -hmm. idea of creating an algorithm that could, quote, set the hay on fire or at least prove that such an algorithm could be created would mean that all of these NP problems actually fall into the category of P problems, right? And no one has done it, Mm -hmm. but the quest to solve does NP equal P has a $1 million prize for anybody who can solve it. I don't think any of us are up to the task, but that's one of the things that mathematicians would love to do (laughs) one day. Ironically, the little side note, NP equals P itself is an NP problem, because if you could find just one example of an NP problem that could never be P, then it would be like the suspect having an alibi. The answer is clear. No, NP doesn't equal P. Anyway, that's unnecessary. (laughs) So (laughs) everything we've talked about up to now has been groundwork, right? So now we get to the question of quantum computing. And quantum computing changes the meaning of time in the sense that if problems can be solved unimaginably faster then that changes our idea of what is solvable and what's not. And then you get to the question of, let's say we ask a quantum computer a question and it comes back and gives us an answer right away. Should we trust it? 
And basically, it's pulled something out of the haystack. It says it's a needle. Do we have a way to test even that one thing that it's handed us and say, yes, is it a needle or no, it's a piece of hay, right? And so this kind of Mm -hmm. added layer of complexity is the class IP or interrogator protocol. It goes back to the police analogy, right? So if the suspect gives the interrogator an alibi, can we at least run down that one alibi and figure out whether he's lying or not, right? Can we examine the yes case? So now (laughs) imagine that there is a crime with multiple suspects, right? So this is MIP. And if you could keep those subjects in separate rooms so that they didn't have a chance to coordinate their stories, then having more than one suspect would increase the cop's ability to get to the truth, right? Because they could compare their different stories. They could see who's lying. But if you let the criminals talk to each other, multiple suspects or MIP would decrease the chances of knowing the truth because they could coordinate and build a stronger lie, right? Yes. So in this scenario... MIP would be the equivalent of letting quantum computers share an entangled qubit. And qubits are the the sort of thing that quantum computers use to do their calculations. And as usual, we get into quantum theory and it gets really mind-blowing because one of the things that this paper proves is that when quantum computing is involved, they actually call it MIP star or MIP asterisk because... When it comes to quantum theory, more coordination between quantum computing means a greater certainty about the answer. And it's very easy to be like, okay, it's quantum. It's the opposite of whatever we assume to be true. And that's fine. But there's obviously a lot more to it. It's 165 dang pages. But the end result of this paper has blown up several disciplines, right? So, for example, there is a theory in physics known as Cyrilson's problem. And it boils down to the quantum version of A equals B, B equals C. Therefore, we can assume that A equals C. And this paper, among other things, proves that in the quantum realm, A does not equal C. And so, yeah. And so it's very, very difficult to understand. The article does a pretty good job. I feel like I have a grasp on the whole, you know, cop interrogator suspect metaphor. But then it also at the end throws in a bunch of like, and the reason this matters is all of these things we thought were true are not true. And it's really just kind of crushing to be reminded constantly that quantum theory is so mind-blowing and hard to understand that I, yeah. <laughs> It's just waiting around the corner to be like, you thought 2020 was crazy? Right, right. Just wait until we get to quantum 2020. <laughs> exactly. There's more than one 2020s, and just because 2020 equals 2020 does not mean it equals 2020. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's good to know that somebody smarter than me is working on this. And if if they've proven it, I believe them because I don't have the ability to test whether I believe them or not. So that's what I'm going with. (laughs) I mean, the closest corollary I can imagine to to relate it to my own experience is with cryptography, Mm -hmm. where now we know that there are certain problems that take so long to solve that they're essentially, you know, impossible to solve It's because they're on the scale of millions of years. But once mm-hmm. you add quantum computing into the mix, all these problems that we rely on just being too difficult to solve right. are now totally completely different and change your perception of the practical reality in which you live. Whereas quantum seems to change the literal reality. Reality. Yeah. Right. Any <laughs> of the like, context clues are what shift. Yeah, right. exactly. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you want to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.